This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's up, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. If you've been watching the show for a long time, you're probably like, what is going on? Jake's on some episodes, Colin's on some episodes. They very rarely do episodes together. We're just never in the same place anymore. That's just that's just the the reality of, of Wildcatters these days. We're running and gunning. We're doing a lot of different things. But I'm excited. We're here today with my buddy David Thule over at GeoLumina. You pitched at ETN Houston this year. Yeah, you that's crushed right. it. You did you did really really well. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I'm I'm surprised it's taking us this long to get you on the podcast. Yeah, well, I, I live an entire hour and a half away. So uh, it's where like, do you live at? Uh, in Bryan. What? Yeah, it's not a long. You know, I graduated trip, from Bryan High. World away, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> well, I went to, I, I grew up in College Station, and then my senior year, my parents were like, "We're going to move to Bryan. We found a house. We're like, whatever." So then I had to go to school in Bryan. So you had to move whole, the entire world away. My entire world away. I know for just to go graduate at a high school where I knew nobody. All the way to Bryan. All the way to Bryan. Yeah. So what part of Bryan are you in? Uh, right near downtown. So okay, uh, like old school downtown Bryan. Yeah, like uh, uh, WJB and Twenty Fifth Street. Nice. Is that still like up and coming over there? That's that's a, that's a kind word for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's been like up and coming for like fifteen years. Yeah, it, I'd give it another ten, and it'll be there. What's that? Um, what's that? That outdoor theater in downtown Bryan, right there. Yeah, the Palace or the something. The Palace. I, I played. A lot of people don't know this, but I've played guitar for like twenty years. I played in my high school band. I played there like four times. Really? Yeah, it was like all of us scene emo kids would get together and play our punk rock stuff. Uh, and there would be like four or five different bands and we'd have like 200 people show up and it was like the coolest thing in the world. I love but it. I played the palace a bunch of times. It's actually just getting rebuilt right now. So Really? I, well, it was weird because, you know, I moved there about a year ago and it looked like it had just been reworked. Yeah. But it was it has been closed the entire time I've been there. And I just saw an announcement last week. It's like, hey, we're rebuilding it again. And so they're like changing some buildings and some structure around it and the seats. And it's gonna be a whole thing, I think. So maybe you'll have to come back and play more punk rock. I might I might need, I might need to. We might need to do like a 20 year reunion. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Probably everyone else in the band's still in Brian. So, so you're not from you're not from there though, right? No. No, where are you from? I was born in Minnesota. Okay. And then I lived in Kansas and yeah. then I lived in Colorado and graduated from high school there uh, and spent all of college in Colorado and, uh, and did some time in Salt Lake City. I uh, worked at a research institute out there in the University of Utah and uh, moved to Austin in 2017 and then to Bryan uh, in 2021, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Was that, would you get brought out there to work for the previous company or is it like you just wanted to do Geolumina in Bryan? Uh, it's a great strategic place to run an AI company. So um, there's a data center in downtown Bryan, which a lot of people don't know about. I so we're that. co-locating a high-performance compute center there. So that's really strategic and nice. Mm. And then uh, it's actually really... So when you're an AI company, we were in Austin. And it's hard to pull AI talent in Austin because they, people tend not to want to work for the oil and gas business. They all want to work at Meta, right? Which hopefully maybe now the maybe the tides are changing because yeah, of, I don't think anybody wants to work there. in big tech anymore. Um, yeah, but so it turns out that uh, Aggies love the oil and gas business. They love subsurface. They already have a, a computer science program that does a lot of what we do in image recognition and drawing recognition. So it, it turned out to be like a really strategic place to be. So we moved over there. 
Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about like what is what is Geolumina do, and then we kind of hopped right into it. Yeah. Uh, so Geolumina is a AI company, computer vision company. That's the like same sort of technology that's in self driving cars. Um, that helps manufacturers spot defects in their products. And what we use it for is to train computers to see what geologists see. Um, it's it's very literal. So it turns out that a lot of what oil and gas and subsurface workers, geologists do, is we look at lots of uh, sparse data and make visual decisions. And so we're training the computer to augment that decision making and, and build um kind of interpretation ability into products aren't aren't like geologists kind of skeptical so i feel like they're always like thinking they're going to be replaced so like well you can't replace me and like what i can see and what i can feel and like this visual whole like interpretation i'm sure like that's probably been a lot of the response probably culturally yeah from these people right yeah I, I, so there are a lot of ways to respond to that i think the first and most interesting one is is we have an ethos that's pretty simple and it's you should automate everything you can and nothing that you can't. Mm-hmm. And, and at like first blush, that seems like the dumbest rule ever, but it's actually a really good rule because it prevents you from wasting a lot of time on the most difficult things and spending all of your time on the stuff that geologists don't really want to do anyway. Mm. So that's really powerful. I think the other side of it is that, um, you know, artists have said a lot about you can't replace an artist with artificial intelligence or will be the least the last thing to convert, right? But what we've seen in the last three years is that Mid-journey AI makes like, incredible yeah. art, right? <laughs> and it doesn't have the same soul as stuff made by people, yeah. but it's not a uniquely human thing. Yeah. And, and so there, there's stuff that you can train it to do. And, and I think the final point that, that I make to a lot of people is that in the last five years, we've lost 30% of the subservice workforce. Um, and that's mostly due to retirement, uh, some layoff attrition, some people changing jobs, but principally retirement. So has demand gone down or is there yeah. not enough supply? Not enough supply. So yeah. um, in the early 1980s, there was the oil bust. Mm-hmm. And basically from about 1984 to just after the year 2000, there weren't very many geoscientists and subservice workers made at universities around the world. I mean, they ended up in other fields, but not a lot of oil and gas geologists. And so um, we have this like hump of age. So 60 plus, you know, a lot of people are in that realm and retiring. And then I'm 38 and uh, I'm kind of the leading edge of the new geoscience that came out of the shale boom and the oil price boom in the mm-hmm. early 2000s. And then but behind me, there's another hump and it tapers off again. So people under the age of about 30 aren't going into the field either. So geology schools that used to graduate 100 or 200 geologists a year some of them graduate five and some of them gotten rid of their program altogether so it's a weird supply demand that's that's really and that's not that's not unfortunately exclusive to to the geology side you know that's the same thing with you know i've had the chance of talking with a bunch of um different schools petroleum engineering departments um where they're like man you know like we have we have funding and we just don't have anybody who actually wants to sign up and 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 go to petroleum engineering school, you know, and it's, and it's hard to like, you know, put a class in where it's 12 people, yeah. you know, to keep those departments open. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's a really unfortunate outcome of the casting of, of oil and gas and role as this like evil specter around mm-hmm. the world. And, and actually, so I went to undergrad at university of Colorado in Boulder and I was in the geology department and little did I know we had 
three or four world-class geology researchers out of the oil and gas world that were uh, professors there. They taught graduate-level courses. I didn't have a single course with them as an undergrad. I didn't even know that geologists like really went into the oil business. I didn't think it could be interesting. So when I got out, I thought I was going to go the straight academic route forever. And it turns out that there's lots of interesting problems to solve from the petroleum company side that may or may not be oil and gas at all. You know, there are carbon sequestration problems. There's uh, things about water resources. There's lots of detail and um, interesting challenges for people that may not think of themselves as oil supporters to do from an oil and gas company side that are incredibly valuable to uh, humanity. And so I think that's unfortunate that a lot of people aren't being exposed to that, that value delivery that happens from oil and gas companies. What made you not only want to be a geologist, but stay a geologist? That's and then now you've started a business around geology. Like I'm curious because we were sitting here talking about not being able to attract you know, people into, into this field. You're obviously very passionate about it. Why are you passionate about it? Yeah. Um, so I, in high school, I had a geology class. We had like a random geology elective and, uh, I did it. I, I, you know, we went and we were in the front range. We were in Colorado, Denver. And so we went on a lot of field trips. We studied earth processes, just like very general low level geology. These are minerals, these are rocks. And it just kind of really was interesting to me. And, and I think what was interesting is I'm, I'm a really great generalist. Uh, like I can do a little bit of chemistry and a little bit of physics and a little bit of mathematics, but I'm not really great at any one of those things. And so geology is like the perfect place to live. Like if you're pretty average at a bunch of different stuff, you can be a really superb geologist. And, and so I think that that's kind of what drew me to it initially. It's like, oh, it's really multidisciplinary. Same thing's true about entrepreneurship. Yeah, that's true. So now you can be a generalist, <laughs> yeah. geologist, and entrepreneur that's because right. honestly, generalists rule the world. Yeah, that's right. And so I ended up going to college and I, I went into engineering. Um, I, I, my parents were like, well, we don't know what geologists do. And I didn't know what geologists did either. So I thought, well, I guess I'll be an engineer. And uh, the math did not agree with me very well. Um, it, and so like every engineer, I flunked, almost flunked out and <laughs> And, and became a geologist. So and and it's been great ever since. So I got kind of involved in research opportunities for undergraduate students. And weirdly enough, I got into numerical modeling, which is like heavy in the math, but it's like physical math. Like you can you can represent the world with it, um, unlike statics equations, which just never made sense to me. And so it just kind of really tripped me into this world that uh, my generalist skills could be quantitatively applied to some line of work. And I just got hooked into it and, and have been interested ever since. I mean, plus we get the coolest field trips. We, you know, you can, you can, you don't, don't tell the IRS. No, uh, any, anything can be a business trip when you're going to be a geologist looking at rocks. You get to go to really cool places. I've been all over the planet looking at rocks. What are some of like the, the, the top places that stick out to you? Man, I love Argentina. Okay. Um, I spent basically two or three weeks every quarter there for like four years and uh, all in the in the mountains on the uh, border of the Neokin Basin with my my colleagues from Argentina and Buenos Aires. And we got to look, walk the outcrops, eat the asado, <laughs> drink wine and do a lot of really interesting work. So that that's really high on my list of, of places in the world. I've also been to 
South Korea, not a lot of rocks to look at, but a lot of uh, companies that that do oil and gas there. And so it's a fascinating place to go. I've been to Canada, Mexico, Paraguay, Uruguay, Colombia, spent a lot of time in Colombia. Love it there. Um, you know, all over Europe. And, I'm just uh, thinking about the foods oh, in South America yeah. right now. Thinking about Argentinian food and Colombian food. Yeah, so good. Oh, that sounds delicious. The best thing was in Colombia, we worked at this core repository in a town called Bucaramanga. And Bucaramanga is awesome, but it's terrifying to fly into because the airport is on the top of this plateau. And it, it feels like you're just going to fall off the end of the world when you land or when you take off. But at the, at the core repository where we go to look at rocks or if you're derogatory, we go to lick the rocks, right? That's what geologists <laughs> are. We're just a bunch of rock lickers. Um, there's a woman in the neighborhood that will bring you a lunch. And I mean, it's like $3 or something. And you get like half a chicken, you know, some sort of noodley dish. I don't even know what it is. And uh, blackberry juice, uh, mora juice. It's delicious. Um, and so like every day it was like, have this huge lunch and it was a struggle to make it through the rest of the day. So that was, that was <laughs> ideal work conditions right there. So getting back to Geolumina, what, you know, obviously you guys are using, um, would you call it AI for the, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, say I, to do this interpretation, right? So you, are you guys trying to replace geologists? Or are you trying to empower geologists? And then what is the, there's a lot of things that a geologist does. What is like the main value proposition? Like what is the mission for, for Geolumina? Sure. And we'll dive deeper into that. Yeah. So I, I don't think you can replace a geologist with AI. Uh, we would have to be pretty far down the road of general artificial intelligence to, to do that. But what you can replace are a lot of rote tasks. Um, we really think that, that the role of AI is to do the things that are simple to tease out with artificial intelligence so that so the geologists can really focus on the hardest part of their job. Right now, it's kind of like an inverted problem sometimes. We spend a lot of time working on stuff that's not very difficult, but we have to do all of it in order to get to the hard part that we want to deal with. Um, and so we spend a ton of time doing the really simple stuff when we should spend 90% of our time on the hardest thing. And so our goal is to take away a lot of that those easy items, even though they're enjoyable, even though they're useful, even though they're valuable, but they're not, if you can automate them with intelligence, the per people should not be doing them, right? I mean, they should focus on things that you cannot get a computer to do by itself. That's the role of human intellect. And that's true across different disciplines, right? Like that's why we're going to see email programs that send canned responses without us ever even touching it. And, you know, God willing, we'll just send a bunch of bots to have the dumb meeting that is keeping us from doing our real jobs, right? Like the human intellect exists for us to tackle the things that are intractable otherwise. So, so we want to kind of backfill that. So what's the, what's the value? Well, we already talked about it. The value is that there aren't enough geologists to fill all of the geology roles we need in the planet. And, and the reason for that is the growth of renewables and, um, Future energy in general has such a high mineral demand, whether it's oil, gas, mm -hmm. uh, copper, heavy metals, cobalt, cobalt, any of those things. Those those are all resources that have to be discovered and they're discovered by geologists. So there's more work than ever to do in the subsurface and fewer people to do it than ever. Mm. And, and so the value is in freeing up 
everyone across this vertical or these multiple verticals in order to do the most challenging things to meet the demands of future energy. Um, I think what, what maybe what a lot of people don't know is that any climate scenario that's been floated by any government on the planet, um, in order to achieve it, we're going to have to mine twice as much copper in the next 25 years, twice as much than has been mined in all of human existence. That's a daunting task. Yeah. And, and that number in and of itself is a big deal. But the more difficult part is that right now, from me saying today, I want to find new copper, to getting to commercial copper production at a mine is a minimum of 10 years. It can be more like 15 or 20. So then how do you, so in the next 25 years, if you need to double copper production compared to as much copper as we mined in the entire existence of the humanity. Yes. And it takes a 10 year lead time. So you're saying we would have to establish, start today. Yes. And then you'd only give yourself a remaining 15 years to actually yeah. do that once they got up and running. In, in practicality, we have to identify all of the resource that we need in the next 25 years in the next five. If we don't do that, we're deeply behind the power curve. And that's just copper. Now, yeah. now do it for everything else. So, so that, that is the sort of monumental challenge. And, and why is it so big and important? Because 3 billion people on this planet still live in energy poverty. That mm -hmm. means they cook with wood and dung. That means... And, well, same with this. That's practically half of the world. <laughs> it's outrageous. It's an outrageous number and none of us should settle for it. Yeah. And, and here's the worst part is that anyone that talks about equity and diversity and, you know, social impact, ener energy poverty disproportionately affects black and brown people around the world, predominantly women and children. And, and the, the number one thing we can do for global equity is raise the level of energy available to all of society. Mm -hmm. It's a critical path. Has 100%. to happen. Yeah. You, there's a direct correlation between energy consumption and quality of life, right? Yep. And we need everybody individually consuming more energy than ever. This is what I love about the whole like, Bitcoin mining side is the it forces energy innovation so that you can generate more energy so that we can consume more energy. Right. And so people don't, don't understand the fact that, oh, it, you know, it's very energy intensive. It's like that's the point for multiple reasons for one to drive the innovation to the whole proof of work concept. Right. Right. So I love I love the fact that you're talking about the fact that half the world is living in energy poverty. You got to think about it, like that's like half the world is not on the Internet. That's like half the world. Yeah. Like. In, in, it's so mind-blowing because we, we get so caught up in like in our, our little glass castle here in the United States yeah. of being like, oh, we're just going to completely just get off of oil and gas. And then it's like, oh, you don't realize how good we have it. Yes. Yeah. And, and here's the wild thing. The definition of energy poverty is absurdly low. Like, like you're considered above energy poverty if you have like enough power to power and charge a cell phone and a tablet in one day. Like that's considered above the energy poverty line. Do you know what the stat is by, by any chance of like people who don't have, it's like you've energy poverty, but then you also got like, maybe you only have intermittent energy for like, I don't know, two hours a day. I know that's a thing, particularly yeah. like in, in a lot of regions in like Africa. It's like you only have a window where you can charge stuff, cook stuff, whatever. And you've kind of 
got to take advantage of that. Yeah, I don't know the exact number. I've heard it floated anywhere from the the three number that I the three billion that I say to up to five billion people. And you know, it, again, it depends on how different organizations define what that cutoff is, what that threshold is, and where those values lie. But I mean, as someone that's traveled the world doing geology, I can tell you, I've I've traveled a lot of places that you think should have readily available energy that do not. And and they definitely don't have it in the way that America does or yeah. Northern Europe, right? And so it's a it's a really eye-opening thing to uh, make your way down the, the streets of a foreign nation and have a child selling you bubble gum on the street as their only means of subsistence. Mm-hmm. They're not in school. They're not learning how to program. They're not going to become the next engineer on the planet. They're selling bubble gum to survive. That that that's something that hurts the soul. What's crazy a lot of people don't think about is this, it's not just like like getting them out of poverty is like the first step, right? And then if you were to, I don't know if this is ever possible. You never never say never, but like if the whole world all of a sudden became all first world countries, right? Mm-hmm. You think about the people that are just in a disadvantaged situations that could be the next Einstein, that could be the next Tesla, that could be the next Elon Musk, could be the next you name it, Jeff Bezos, right? That's just kind of, they're just in a very disadvantaged situation and a a part of the world that just doesn't have access to energy. By bringing all of that on, we're bringing on this collective like knowledge and it's it's just more powerful than ever and that's going to continue to move society forward yeah absolutely i mean the the opportunity cost of of brilliance is is like irreplaceable right and and you know if you look at human if you look at innovation among you know human culture over time i mean it's it's really been a stepwise liberation of people from subsistence creates explosive deltas in technological advance. And it's, it's because they have time to think they have time to imagine you have time to learn and wonder and explore the world. And, and that, that creates opportunity that, that doesn't exist when, when your life is hard scrabble. And it's, it's really hard to imagine, you know, and like, I'm an, I'm an older guy, but I talk to a lot of you know, Zoomers and millennial, young millennials, and they, they, they always feel really disconnected from stuff that was only a hundred years ago. Yeah. Right. Like if you look at pictures of the 1920s and well, and even today in Appalachia, you know, none of the kids have shoes, very few of them go to school and they all live a hand to mouth existence. And that is not long ago. That's my grandparents. Right. That's one. That's one living generation. It's crazy to think of like the modern (laughs) society, like we're all. Yeah, we're a generational world from the world being completely different than what it is. Right. It's just I think we think we were born in just an absolutely miraculous time. I know like my 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 great grandmother was born in 1912 and then passed away in the early 2000s. But just to think about the things that she saw right. during her lifetime in the wars and the yeah. ups and the downs of the economy and just seeing technology, it was developed. I mean, she had a rotary phone in her house too. You know, I think she passed away right around the time the iPhone came out. Like how just nuts that is. Yeah. And But you think about it from our lifetime, what we've seen and what we are going to see. Yeah. ChatGPT is, I think, one of the biggest inflection points of like, technology in the world ever i mean i think it's as as great as the internet yeah you know it's like so what's what's next yeah it'll be it'll be just as explosive unless it's crippled by a lack of energy yeah think about think about that nightmare right yeah and 
And there's a really interesting like global demographics and population thing happening, right? I don't know what the number is, but you know, China's at one point something billion people, but by 2050, they're going to be under a billion is, is the demographic projection. And likewise, America is going to go from 360 million to down probably under 300 million. And Africa is going to go, you know, up to one plus billion. India, same thing. They're going to they're going to increase. And so there's this global shift of of supply and demand and people and and need and innovation centers are going to are going to shift drastically in the next 20. Do you know do you know why people are not procreating? (laughs) <laughs> in certain countries, like I know, I know. For example, I've seen a, a whole thing. I, mean, I think it was a documentary on Japan, yeah. right? And it goes in depth into you know their obsession with uh, technology and just screen time and video games, and it's just kind of part of the culture mm-hmm. where you've got a bunch of them that are just not very, I don't know, they're not just like very extroverted. It's like a very introverted kind of culture they keep to themselves, and therefore population is declining. In the United States, why would that be the case? Yeah, I think I think that's a really complicated question that a lot of people are asking. And I think the answers are really diverse. Um, I think if you if you talk to some people, the climate catastrophe cult, we'll call them, I, I think have made a lot of people feel really despondent about like, what's the future of the planet? Why should I bring anyone into this world? Yeah. It's going to be a post-apocalyptic nightmare, which I don't believe for one second. And so I think that's part of it. I think another interesting part of it is that as societies become more advanced and you need to work less and less hard to survive, actually, the, a lot of the population becomes infantilized until very old age. It, you know, like it wasn't uncommon to be hard, a hardworking teenager, you know, just two generations ago. And and you were adult, you were an adult at 18 that did adult stuff. I mean, the founding fathers were what, like in their early 20s. Yeah. And 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 so, you know, I think that that pushes the age back of of when you have children and then it makes having children even more difficult for biologic reasons. I think there's a lot of like confounding factors there. Um, and but fear is a big one, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, my wife, Callie, has a really great theory about human suffering. And it's that it's basically constant and all that's alternating is whether it's physical or mental. And, and so if, if you decrease physical suffering, a lot of mental suffering increases because you, you, you don't have any physical pain to focus on. And so but like he, the human condition is a fairly static thing. And so you, you see that this interchange happens. So and I think that's where the fear comes from, because your physical mm-hmm. suffering is a lot lower. So your mental anguish and fear of the world becomes higher. I, I, it's, a, it's kind of a smart idea that, that I, I mean, also you've got the, the how how fast information can travel around the world is now, you know, a nanosecond with mm-hmm. the Internet and with social media and stuff. And you think about all the fear mongering yeah. there and it's like be terrified of everything. I mean, right. that's what that's what sells news, right? Yeah, so. absolutely. We, I guess we can blame uh, CNN, right? Because yeah, they, 100%. Like, like 24 hour cable news meant that you had to come up with something bad that's happening every minute of the day. I was, I was actually listening to, um, it was a podcast about uh, William Randolph Hearst, uh, the media mogul. Um, you know, he essentially bought uh, a newspaper that like was fledgling newspaper in San Francisco and then turned that around and talks about all his tactics and stuff. And, you know, say if it, if it, uh, what, what's, what's the term? It's like if it bleeds, it leads or something like that. Mm. And so like him, him 
doing his own stuff. And then I guess he was very influential in the um, the American uh, Spanish War yeah. and like perpetuating that through the media. And, mm-hmm. and you just see that extrapolated out a billion times more now, right? With uh, with like mainstream media, but then also like all the stuff that came out in the Twitter files and how the government was using that as essentially a propaganda uh, platform and censorship platform, right? You know, so yeah, a lot of reasons to uh, not be on social media uh as a result of that but anyways i'm having a great time going down the rabbit hole getting back to geolumina yeah you were essentially creating super geologist yeah that's the goal right i mean they're they're coming in as steve rogers and they're walking out as captain geologist yeah i, I okay. like to say they're all tony stark and they're going to end up being iron man yeah that's that's the analogy i really like so walk me through some use cases how to how to geologist like if somebody somebody's listening they're like hey how can i use this in my actual workflow Walk me through some examples. Yeah, we we find that we have kind of two baselines of customer. Uh, customer number one um, is kind of the we have a general problem, and and that general problem is lots of unstructured information that can be things in PDFs and PowerPoints and uh, you know even this, this mostly files. logs. Yeah, it could be logs. Yeah. It can be all kinds of things that aren't numerically digitally stored, right? Yeah. Like they aren't they aren't numbers in a database. Okay. And, and so the problem is, how do you get through all of that? How do you how do you extract the pertinent pieces? Well, what we do now is we look through it page by page. And if we're really bad, we write it down in a notebook. And then maybe eventually we put it in an Excel sheet. And then maybe it makes its way into our workstation and things like that. So okay. we want to try and get rid of that stuff. So it's like the AI is finding the pertinent values. It's converting them into digital information. And it's making them work, workstation ready. It's also making them searchable and discoverable. So all the technology that kind of goes behind language processing and allows uh, search and elastic search or uh, cognitive search, these sort of technologies that exist out there in the world of data discovery, we're leveraging all of those to make finding information easier. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a pilot for a, a, this client that had kind of this generalist problem, which was we have two terabytes of research that we've paid tens of millions of dollars for over the last 20 years. And it's hard to use because it all comes from researchers in different formats and different structures. And, you know, you always kind of try to integrate it as you go, but you mm-hmm. never quite get everything done because something's yeah. more important than something else. Right. And so uh, it, it turns out that there was 8,500 file folders filled with 425,000 files just on that two terabytes of drive. Uh, and it, it, in, in a human scale, if I was to say, hey, go go in there and, and find out what's in each of those files. So if you would have double clicked to open each file, mm-hmm. it would have taken weeks of double clicking. And all you would have been able to do is open the files. Yeah. You wouldn't have been able to synthesize anything inside of it. Well, the AI does it 10,000 times faster. It just blitzes through all of those and turns it into structured information and mm. now it's searchable and ready so that's kind of that generalist claim. so are they so in that so in that situation is it is it just kind of um it's taking it and it's digitizing it is it kind of quantifying what you have or is it also like is there some sort of like qualitative metric to like hey you have two terabytes but like one terabyte's garbage like yeah. it's not even like there's no point in even that's always that's always the question with data, right? It's right. like we have all of this data, you know, we need to digitize all of it. And it's like, well, that's not always like the case because, I mean, trash in, trash out, right? And so it's figuring out, well, we have all this data. What's the good data that we actually need to get to the dashboards, the insights, all yeah. that kind of stuff that we can actually make decisions on? Right. Yeah, there's there's kind of both sides of that, right? So let's let's really simplify it and say, okay, 
like a, a well drilling report, right? Like that's kind of got it like a 50 page format. It talks about where the casing points are and where the plugs are and what was perforated and the geologist's impression of what happened and qualitative and quantitative information. And so the, the system will go through. And so for every time it finds a casing point, it knows what a casing point is. We've trained it to. So it will turn that into a data table of casing points that are now available throughout a system. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's reading about the uh, cuttings that came out of the wellbore in the fluorescence and, you know, maybe in some intervals, the geologist's really negative. No cut, no fluorescence. This doesn't look good. It analyzes the sentiment. It puts the structure in there. It labels the interval that way. If the if the sentiment is positive, it adds that as a possible lead. And that's something you can explore. So where where is, you know, where is the, where are the qualities good? And then there's this for every number that kind of ends up analyzed, you can apply rules, right? Like, uh, you know, the, the number has to be within a certain range. Otherwise, it's probably erroneous. So it'll give it a validity score or, or things like that. So there's like this quality rating as well that that come out of the system as, it, as it's building its body of work. Interesting. So is the AI, the main purpose is to take this massive, massive amounts of information, structure it, and you said getting it kind of like workspace ready. Is there anything else that takes place or is that where the human kind of pops in and now you do your job? Yeah, it does. A, it does a lot of interesting things. So um, there's a lot of like visual collateral in geology, graphs and charts and thin sections and photos and maps. And it's actually evaluating all of those visually. So every image that's inside of a report says, oh, OK, there's an image here. What is it? Uh, that's a uh, that's a seismic cross section. OK, cool. What's inside of that seismic cross section? Well, I see three faults. Uh, there's a thing that looks like a channel complex and uh, all of those labels get created. So now you can find and identify where that is. Um, if it's a maybe a thin section or cuttings photo, it'll identify the pieces of rock inside of it and say, oh, there's it's 65 percent feldspar and there's uh, some other interesting things in it. You know, there's the, the, the idea is really that it's only as limited as your imagination in terms of what you can train the system to see and do. It really depends on what your goal is. So. That's like client one, right? Is this generalist, we need to get through the information better. Client type two is is kind of this more interesting side or this differently interesting side of, we have a particular interpretation problem. Can we make the system just do that? Mm-hmm. And, and so that might be, take all the core photos and turn them into digital information, like numerical numbers that go in along with log data. And so what is it doing? Well, Core photos are usually in a box layout. There's maybe three cores and a scale bar and then three more. And so it'll extract all of those, stack them into one long photo and depth register it automatically because like the depths are written on the core and that stuff's there. And then, okay, now that you have a depth registered core, what you really want is a description of what the rocks look like. And so the AI can actually do that too. It can say, oh, this is a bioturbated sandstone from this depth to this depth and from this depth to this depth, it's a clean sandstone. And here to here is a shale and over there is a core plug. And then it turns all of that into numbers that end up in the workstation. And so the idea is that, you know, usually what happens is the geologist like puts it in PowerPoint and copies and pastes the photos together and then outputs a picture and then has to depth register it himself. It's like several or herself. It's like a couple, you know, it's like a couple days worth of work. Yeah. It's silly. We shouldn't be doing that. We should, the computer should do that. So in addition to all of that, would you say that it's, it's probably more accurate. I mean, especially on the exploration side, maybe less dry holes. 
that's always the hope, right? And yeah. I think the the way I like to talk to people is is that we get asked about accuracy a lot. And our goal is always this. Things don't go into production, meaning like they're deployed to clients, unless they're as accurate as a generally trained geologist that isn't an expert in the area. Yeah. And the goal is to always be as accurate as a world expert in whatever that specific discipline. And so, but like our baseline is like, you got to be a decent enough geologist and you want to be a really good one. Yeah. So like, that's the goal, right? Is like, what's, what's the accuracy like? And then how does that trickle downstream to exploration success? I mean, I would, I would love to sit here and tell you that better geologic accuracy leads to more exploration success. And, and generally that is true, but there's not a one-to-one relationship. You, mm-hmm. you know, you can do all the accurate geology in the world and still make bad exploration decisions for lots of different reasons. Like it's mm-hmm. a multivariate problem in order to uh, identify a resource and successfully exploit it. Yeah. I'm just thinking about like, what is the, what's kind of the next frontier, right? And I think there's, there's two things that as technology continues to develop and as the, the cost of deploying certain kind of technology is coming down, I like to think that um, EOR is probably going to make a big comeback. I mean, cause we're not discovering, the next Permian, at least not yet. Uh, I think offshore is probably going to be getting cheaper and cheaper over time. I think you can see a lot of success there. But then it makes me wonder, like, does exploration as a whole kind of make like a big comeback? And don't get me wrong, you've got smaller guys out there that are just like punching a bunch of like vertical holes in the ground. But like, like, like on a bigger scale, mm. you know, if, if we had the, the right tools uh, kind of in place to be more accurate to, you know, it'd be cool. It'd be cool just to like all of a sudden we discovered another like massive basin somewhere um, and just seeing another oil rush. There was this there was this company back in the early 2000s. I don't know if you ever heard about this that raised at like a 1.5 billion dollar valuation, mm-hmm. right? And it was this guy at a JPL. Mm-hmm. And what he was essentially saying, it was like, I can tell you exactly where oil's at. He's shooting seismic from the air mm-hmm. using these Russian jets. Mm-hmm. And he raised 400 million dollars from like some big names in oil and gas i wish i knew the name of it oh man if anybody knows the name uh, reach out and let me know uh because there's there's so much there's so much like crazy articles about this guy but he he raised all this money and bought these like decommissioned russian jets and his whole thing was like i'm gonna like beam down seismic and i'm gonna tell you exactly where all the pockets of oil are like no more dry holes like that was his like sell and it was like so crazy. It was like an Adam Newman from WeWork style pitch, but uh-huh. he like raised all this money and then obviously come to find out like the technology like just didn't exist uh, and, and it didn't work. But it was funny that he was able to go and like swindle oil and gas executives into like funding him. And then there was like this whole like he went to prison for it and like a whole wow. bunch of other stuff. So Yeah. I mean, look, like what's the what's the bleeding edge of exploration and and, and production really? I mean. We sit in this really interesting place right now because the digital technology is advancing rapidly, but the data we can source from is languishing pretty hard. And and that's because, you know, up until 1990, I mean, the data aren't really digital, right? I mean, even in the early 80s when oil and gas got deep into supercomputing and early computing and seismic acquisition digitally and, and all of these things, I mean, a lot of that data didn't get converted efficiently or effectively or at all. And, you know, there are like salt mines in Kansas full of oil and gas records that they, they no doubt hold some clue to the future potential in, in lots of places, but they're they're on paper. And, and so we've got to get over that hurdle in a in a really big, big data kind of way. And it's 
it's funny, right? Because if you if you talk about oil and gas and and all of the people in our industry, we kind of think like, oh yeah, we have big data, but not in the way that that big data scientists think of it, right? So if if I was you know living in Austin or even Houston, I guess, and I was collecting everybody's cell phone data on the second every hour. I would have like two orders of magnitude more data than I have from all of the well logs in the Powder River Basin uh, that exist. Mm-hmm. So like there's there's like a couple orders of magnitude more data in one hour of cell phone information yeah. than there is in an entire nearly hundred year drilling history in the subsurface of that basin. Like that's we have sparse data. We really do. And and so that limits the autonomous nature in, in in how AI can find and validate things, right? Mm-hmm. And we also have these resolution problems, right? So the usually we have vertical resolution differences between all of our different data types. And those obfuscate the really important relationships. And and that's like people heuristically have found this. Like, like I, I gave an example on LinkedIn the other day where you know, some geologists said, well, we, we always just map if a cutoff is more than 5% or something here. And it's like, well, but why did, why 5%? Mm-hmm. And, and the logic was sound until you realized that the data set was biased. And so it, it wasn't actually doing what you thought it did, but it worked well enough for, for poking holes in the ground. And so there's this, there's a long way to go on, on this continuum of data richness, data density, and data access in order to make like this dream of we won't make a drilling mistake in the future, like as, as in we won't miss a target in the future or we will we will only only drill hits. Right. I mean, there's a reason global exploration success pretty much hovers at or below 20 percent. And it has for the last 40 years. It, really? Yeah, really. I thought it was a little bit higher than that. Not really. It makes sense, though. It makes sense. <laughs> well, I mean, if you put shale wells in, but those don't count. Right. So <laughs> if you if you look at global offshore exploration success rates, they pretty much hover under 20 percent. And, and you know, it, it all depends on who who counts what as a discovery and why and, and some of these other things. But it, it's it's hard. You know, that's and, just that. But that's just hit rate, though. That's not what you would consider success. Because right? you could you could hit and it could be something that comes in. I, I would say that's commercial success is okay, something under okay. right around or under 20 percent. For a number of years, it was like 10 percent. Right. Well, that's kind of what makes it fun, though. Right. I think so. But the finance guys don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like being Indiana Jones. But yeah. if every cavern you ran through uh, was likely to kill you, but uh, you only got treasure one tenth of the time that's <laughs> not a great not, well not great hopefully record. that one treasure makes up for all the other dry holes right it does a lot right yeah. i mean there's a there's especially a, offshore totally there's yeah. a famous old driller in in the rockies and his claim to fame was he drilled i think it was 33 straight dry holes and but the 34th paid for every one of and 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 not only that made him so much money. Uh, no one ever remembers that he drilled thirty three dry holes, right? Like that. That's the kind of it's a weird business, right? And for people that are uninitiated to oil and gas, and I assume almost all of your listeners know something about our business, but for people that don't, we're kind of like pharma, where you know you're doing all of these high risk, high reward sort of iterations on value creation and you have to have this portfolio of opportunity in order to realize the value right like there aren't very many pharma companies that succeed by only doing one thing 
they, they create a portfolio of opportunity across like different drug types and different intervention types. And, and that's where they realize value. And the same is true in, in oil and gas and subservice. It's true to some extent in, in finance too, right? You need a portfolio of opportunities to succeed. To succeed. It's particularly in the, the venture capital side, right? The power Absolutely. law, right? So you invest in 10 companies, yeah. you lose money in nine, and that, that 10th yeah. makes up for all your losses in the other one, right? Yeah. It's just and, a known thing. And, and finance people think nothing of that. Yeah. But but when the power law is applied to drilling capital, well, they, like, they, oh. they get a little bit freaked out. And, yeah. and that's okay. I mean, that's <laughs> that's that's why uh, there are rich families in Fort Worth and uh, <laughs> Houston yeah. and... You know, because they they understand that power law really well, and 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 they're they're comfortable in that risk space, which is Dude, great. This is getting me jazzed. I want to go punch some holes in the ground. Yeah, absolutely. Every day, right? I know, man. I, I there are a couple of guys I follow on LinkedIn that I'm always really jealous because he's like drilling some shallow hole in Kansas, and he does like I don't know twenty a month or something, and it's like, man, the thrill of discovery on that one when you're out there running the thing into the ground is is pretty cool. <laughs> Well, man, uh, this has been this has been fun. We went down the we put our tinfoil hats on a little bit and went down the rabbit hole. Uh, if anybody wants to learn more about Geolumina, what's the website? www.geolumina.ai. Perfect. Yeah. And you uh, you're also going to be on DW Insight by the time this comes out, so people can go there and check out your profile. Great. And um, learn more about you. Reach out to you guys. Thanks for coming, man. This has been great. Yeah, thanks a lot. I appreciate the time. Absolutely. Go, 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 go.